0: My colleague Helen Mountfield. Sadly today we are without the show's anchorman Richard Hermer who in just 10 episodes has established himself as the David Runciman of law podcasting. Helen and I will do our best to keep the show on the road before Richard's return next week. In our last episode we talked to Paul Van Sayle about whether transitional justice has anything to teach us in democracies like the US and the UK, about how we combine processes capable of leading to the acknowledgement of past wrongs like slavery and imperial exploitation, with urgent practical action to address the structural causes of systemic racism in the here and now. That podcast is still available for download from the Matrix website or from your preferred platform. This week, as we approach the long-awaited end of lockdown, we're again considering transition. This time from response to recovery from the COVID pandemic and the opportunities and challenges this presents for human rights and the rule of law. In this episode, we will be turning to the future, To ask whether there really is an opportunity to build back better, as the UN puts it, and what this might mean in particular in the UK, which, let's not forget, before the lockdown, was in possibly the most politically polarised, socially divided and fragmented state in living memory, in the wake of Brexit, a bruising general election and existential threats to the Union. So, has the pandemic created a space in which it might be possible to begin to recover from the recently toxic polarisation of our politics, and to begin to forge a new consensus capable of underpinning lasting constitutional reform? In particular, has it made it possible to have a more mature national conversation about what rights are considered to be fundamental in this country, and how they should be protected? The pandemic has revealed a far stronger popular consensus than we previously thought existed, about the importance of rights like the right to health and the right to financial security and the institutional means by which we protect them, the National Health Service and our system of social security. Does this revealed consensus create opportunities for constitutional transformation and if so, how should those opportunities be seized? Here with us to discuss these questions are two significant and highly experienced human rights actors, Cato Regan, Director of the Bonavero Institute of Human Rights in Oxford, who was appointed at the age of 37 to the Constitutional Court of South Africa by Nelson Mandela and spent 15 years on the court, making many important contributions to its jurisprudence, uh, including its important case law on social and economic rights. And Alan Miller, Professor of Practice in Human Rights at the University of Strathclyde in Scotland, former Chair of the Scottish Human Rights Commission and currently co-chair of Scotland's National Task Force on Human Rights Leadership, and also with an outstanding record of achievement in the practical realisation of human rights. Kate and Alan, thank you both very much indeed for joining us. Kate, if I can turn to you first, you've seen close up and played a very active part in one of the world's best known constitutional transformations. Does this feel like a moment of constitutional opportunity in the UK to you?
1: Well, good morning, Murray and Helen and Alan, and thanks very much for the invitation to participate in this conversation. I think it's often hard to decide whether one is in a constitutional moment. South Africa, of course, was an exception because from the day on the 2nd of February 1990, when former President F.W. de Klerk unbanned the liberation movements and announced that he was going to release the political prisoners, who many of whom had been in jail for more than 30 years or close to 30 years, it it became very clear that we were in a constitutional moment. That was a fundamental change. But I think if one looks at many democracies around the world, one realizes that one of the things about democracies is that they are uh, political processes for managing uh, conflict and disagreement. And quite often then, moments seem to be constitutional moments. And I think constitutional moments are perhaps more common than, um, or, or more possible than people tend to think. There's no doubt, as an outsider looking in, that the moment of Brexit is a very significant moment in the United Kingdom. It is a fundamental constitutional and political change, and it requires a a moment of rethinking about what the United Kingdom is going to be going forward, and those conversations are happening all the time. And in that sense, it seems to me, it is quite arguably a constitutional moment.
0: And, And Kate, what are your thoughts about whether what we've been going through recently with the pandemic? has revealed whether there's a stronger consensus than we thought before about the importance of certain certain rights?
1: Well, I think that there is a, a realisation of how important ensuring people's right of access to healthcare is. That uh, I think most people have always thought that, but I think it's become very clear during the pandemic. And also recognising that other rights are important to people but at times we accept that they may need to be overridden and we can have disagreement as to how overridden they should be and in what circumstances they should be overridden. But we do accept, many of us, that in the interests of a broader community at times, we're willing to give up on our freedom of movement, uh, our ability to go outside, etc., uh, in order to, to protect a broader community. That's a very strong sense of community and a strong sense of interconnectedness within our community. Which I think underpins the idea of human rights actually very fundamentally. We often talk about human rights as being underpinned by the idea of human dignity, which I think is an important uh, value at the base of human rights. But as important, I would say, is this idea of human community and interconnectedness. And I think that is uh, an aspect of uh, a human rights sensibility which has emerged. Uh, very um, palpably during the pandemic.
0: One of the things that I think has been very interesting during the pandemic is the way in which people have talked about things like health and financial security uh, as rights, as fundamental rights, because traditionally in the UK, a lot of the human rights narrative and discourse has tended to exclude those from the human rights conversation as not being um, human rights, which are capable of having some sort of fundamental legal protection. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in South Africa of legalising protection for those rights at a constitutional level, how that's done, what the respective role of of courts and political institutions are?
1: Well, it's very interesting that South Africa had a two-phase process of um, adopting its constitution. And in the first phase, there was a Bill of Rights, which did not expressly protect economic and social rights. That changed in the what is called loosely the final constitution of South Africa, which was adopted in 1996, and economic and social and cultural rights were explicitly protected in the constitution. And it was widely understood that if we had not pre- protected those, in some ways it would have missed the reality of the effects of apartheid and colonialism on most South Africans, which was to mean that achieving those rights, achieving access to housing, achieving access to healthcare and education was the most important thing about the the transformation to democracy. And if we had focused only on civil and political rights, in some ways it would have overlooked the significance of the moment for many poor South Africans.
0: There's a sense coming out now of the pandemic that that's also what's what's been revealed here in the UK that these are the most fundamental, the most important um, of the of the rights that we recognise to be to be rights. But there is this traditional reluctance in the UK to recognise them as being fundamental. C- can you see a way in which in the UK and its particular circumstances and its particular history, it would be possible to give better? legal protection for those rights in a way which is capable of commanding a, a wide consensus?
1: Yes, so I think sometimes we, we confuse the question of institutional protection and enforcement of rights with the question of what are rights. And it's important to recognise that modes of institutional enforcement and protection can vary, but the rights themselves, the sins that actually we do think people should have in our modern democracies, rights of access to healthcare, access to education, um, access to housing, to food and water are generally not controversial. So, a lot of the, the debate then really needs to shift to the question of modes of institutional enforcement. In South Africa, the courts play an important role in institutional enforcement, but it is and always must be, in my view, a secondary role. The primary responsibility in relation to protecting fundamental human rights, and this is where the ones talking about economic and social and cultural rights or civil and political rights is always a responsibility borne by by the democratic arms of government, by by the legislature and the executive. That doesn't mean that there isn't a role for courts, but it's it's important not to uh, confuse or, or to overlook the in, the the primacy of the responsibility of the executive and the legislature for fulfilling rights.
0: Can you say a bit more about what the nature of that role is for courts? Because often it's a debate stopper in the UK to talk about rights like the right to health, having legal protection, because the conversation immediately turns to how ridiculous it would be to have courts making all the decisions. Um, yeah. And it skips out the stage of uh, that you've just outlined, of courts having a role, um, but it's a secondary role. Could you say a bit more about what that role is?
1: Yes. So under the South African Constitution, um, it's important to recognize that rights impose both negative and positive obligations upon the state. That means that the state bears a duty not to interfere with people achieving um, protection of the rights and also an obligation to assist people to fulfill the rights. It's easy to um, describe that in relation to access to housing by saying that the state may not evict people from their homes without a good reason. That would be a breach of their negative um, obligation not to interfere with the right to housing. And of course, very often with civil and political rights, we think first of these negative sorts of obligations, that the state mustn't interfere with my right of freedom of expression, freedom of speech, or my freedom of movement. And exactly the same kind of negative obligations arise in relation to uh, economic and social rights as they do in relation to civil and political rights. And under the South African constitution, this obligation upon the state not to evict in without good cause and without serious um, uh, engagement with the community who are going to be evicted to see whether there are alternatives to eviction has been a very important part of the adjudication of the right of access to housing. But in addition to the negative obligation, there is the positive obligation, and by and large, The economic and social rights, the scope of the positive obligation, i.e., what it is that the state is required to do, is delineated explicitly in the language of the Constitution, which says that the state must take legislative and other measures within its available resources progressively to realize the achievement of the rights. That therefore imposes a programmatic Obligation upon the state iteratively to consider what it should be doing to protect the rights. And if it fails to do anything at all, the courts can hold the legislature and other arms of government to account by saying, You are failing to meet your positive obligation to take reasonable legislative and other measures to achieve these rights. So it is not the same as being able to go to court and saying, I want a house today, but it is. Um, you are able to go to court and say that the state has done nothing about providing access to housing in my neighbourhood or in relation to somebody like me. And the state must must be put on terms to do something about that.
2: Kate, can I ask, how, how do the courts go about um, the justiciability of that question? Um, is it a sort of hands-off irrationality level of review or a proportionality or it's quite. I can see that's the sort of question that's very controversial in the UK courts.
1: Yes, so it's not what UK lawyers would refer to as a Wednesbury level of unreasonableness, but it requires. So there are some substantive elements in it. The most important being that the state may not ignore the needs of those most vulnerable. So, for example, in relation to housing, it can't have a housing policy. Which only provides for people who can pay a basic rental every month, and ignore those people who are unable to pay any rent at all. The court would say that's unreasonable because, in assessing what is reasonable, we need to recognise that the um, the right is there for everybody, and to only select out a particular group and ignore those who are particularly vulnerable and most need the protection of the right would not be reasonable. That's the. That's the strongest, I would say, substantive obligation in the reasonableness review. But the reasonableness review is also context-based. So it will look at what the particular policy is and government's reasons for it. So there's a lot of respect for government's reasons. And there are quite a lot of NGOs who would prefer the court to have been more more interventionist and and be more assertive about what it is a government should do. I think what the court's view has been is that it is very difficult. There are very many choices that can be made here. And as long as you do pay attention to the needs of the most vulnerable, we're not going to be too directive about how those choices uh, should be exercised and what choices should be made. I, I think, I mean, I could give an example of two cases that were brought, which I often use as an illustrative of how it works in practice. And I think, uh, Murray, you'll be familiar with them. Subramony is the dialysis case, and the treatment action campaign is the mother-to-child transmission case. They came to different outcomes, and I think that in the different outcomes, it's, uh, it has explanatory power in understanding how the court approaches the problem. Mr. Subramoni was a man who was living with ischemic heart disease and also renal disease, severe renal disease, which required him to get dialysis. He had expended all his savings on getting dialysis in the private sector and then went to a state hospital when he could no longer afford to get dialysis on the basis that he would die if he didn't get dialysis. The state hospital had developed a medico-ethical set of principles governing the people who would get access to dialysis. And the rule was that in order to get access to state dialysis, you had to be eligible for a transplant. Because if you weren't eligible for a transplant, the way that people with renal failure, um, the the prognosis is that they will need dialysis for the rest of their lives. So the the government hospital policy was based on we want to make dialysis available to as many people as possible, and particularly to ensure that we are not, one person is not getting access to a very limited resource for a long period of time, um, when other people who might actually be able to, use it for a shorter period of time, have a transplant and move off it, um, would mean that more people would get to it. The court looked at this policy and felt that this was reasonable policy um, within government's available resources to achieve the progressive realisation of the right and said to Mr. Subramoni, tragic as it was, we cannot order the state to provide you with access to dialysis. That is not what the positive obligation upon the state is here. The question we have to answer is, as what the state has done, is it reasonable? And the answer to that is yes, which means that the state is not wrong to deny you access to dialysis. The court produced the judgment in a very short period of time because we knew that Mr. Subramoni was terminally ill, um, and he did die shortly after the judgment was handed down. A very hard judgment for a court to have to write, but one which reinforced the uh, and illustrated the nature of the positive obligation upon the state well, I think. The second case was a case about mother-to-child transmission of HIV-AIDS, where South Africa is a country which has one of the greatest burdens of HIV. And the evidence is that women who are pregnant, who are living with HIV, are very likely to transmit the HIV to their unborn child, either during pregnancy or during um, childbirth. And um, a, a medication was produced that was established to be both safe and um, effective in preventing mother-to-child transmission of HIV. The manufacturer of the medication said to the South African government that they would provide it to the South African government free of charge, no matter how much was needed, to prevent mother-to-child transmission. The medication was approved by the South African Medical Council for that purpose, for for mother-to-child, to to prevent mother-to-child transmission, and the World Health Organization had also approved this medication as the primary uh, tool for preventing mother-to-child transmission of HIV. The South African government, however, said, who uh, the president at the time was very sceptical about the links between HIV and AIDS and particularly sceptical about the use of antiretroviral medications, and decided that the medication would not be available in all South African clinics, but to a very limited number, only two per province, um, for a period of time. And a case was brought before the South African Constitutional Court saying that this policy was unreasonable. It seems surprising now, but it was an enormously politically sensitive case because of the views that the president had aired on the relationship between HIV and AIDS, and for which he was getting political support from the majority political party in the country, the the government of the day, the African National Congress. But the court considered the evidence before it and said that it was not reasonable, given the attitude of both the World Health Organization, the South African Medical Control Council, and the other evidence before it on the efficacy and safety of the administration of Nambarapine, given the real risks to unborn children, and ordered that the government make nevarapine available. It also said that if a more effic- efficacious or better medication became available, government would be entitled to adopt that. So that was a moment when government said your policy, and it was clearly a policy, is unreasonable and in breach of your positive obligation under the right of access to health care, and ordered the government to implement a different policy, giving them the opportunity to amend that if better Medication or better treatment um, to prevent mother-to-child transmission should become available. So that's an in- indication of a moment often considered a highly politically uh, sensitive. When a court turned to a democratically elected government and said, "You may not institute the policy that you have adopted because the right of access to healthcare is unreasonably um, impaired by your policy, and you have uh, and, you, and you may not adopt it."
0: It's very interesting, Kate. I think what you're describing there about the, the both the limits of the court's role, but the ne- nevertheless the importance of the role that it does have, shows a much more democratically mature approach in a very young democracy to the approach compared to the approach that we've taken traditionally in the UK, where we've had a, a rather um, bifurcated approach to uh, the role of the courts in relation to these sorts of rights and the role of the democratic branches. And I think that's quite a, an interesting lesson for the uk what you've just described um one quick thought which helen um knows much more about than me um there is an area of course in uk law and practice recently uh, which might be <clears throat> quite relevant to charting that more democratically mature approach to these sorts of rights which is the equality duty the public sector equality duty and other due regard duties um, so in terms of what you have just described not being completely um, alien to uk traditions do you think there's something in the recent experience in the last 10 years with that duty uh, that could help to chart the way to a more mature discourse on the other rights?
1: I mean, I do think that the public sector equality duty, and I'm I'm not an expert, but I do think that the idea of, uh, it it, it is an important way of thinking about um, the institutional enforcement of fundamental rights. As I said at the outset, I, I think we can never overlook Courts are not going to be good policy makers. Their institutional structure and the way in which they operate doesn't make them ideal for making policy. The legislature and the executive are the place for that to happen. But we do want to make sure that when policy is made, the due regard is had to core fundamental rights, which as a society we care about. And I think, therefore, that formulating um, fundamental rights in a due regard uh, mode is very helpful, and I think that courts can be an important um, institutional safeguard of due regard uh, obligations upon the state. It's very much the traditional administrative law approach to thinking about the way in which the state functions, and so I do think that there is room um, there is room for thinking in that way, and it, it, it it's often about making sure that things are on the table in policy making. That might otherwise not be uh, directly in the gaze of the policymakers, who might be thinking particularly about questions of efficacy, of capacity, and questions like that, and to put some substantive rights or substantive um, considerations on the table. So I, I, I think it's a it's a, an innovative and interesting way of thinking about equality, um, and. Yeah, having sat on various committees since I've been in Oxford, where we remind ourselves about the equality duty and these kind of things, I think that they can really have an impact with um, uh, with good faith application uh, within government um, uh, agencies.
0: Helen, does your experience with the equality duty and litigating the equality duty? Suggest that there could be a, a bridge to a to a more mature approach to economic and social rights and positive duties generally
2: well I think I think they can and although I share with Kate um, a lot of acquaintances who think they're you know pusillanimous pathetic things that don't really achieve very much, I think they do in bringing thoughts into the mix and I was really struck once I remember um, arguing one of the bedroom tax cases. Uh, in front of a court where we were using an argument about the public sector equality duty um and i was saying that the decision maker hadn't thought properly about the impact of this policy on disabled people and one of the judges who was a far from liberal-minded judge said well for goodness sake you know they, it, it, you don't need a public sector equality duty to think about that it would be obviously be irrational not to take into account the needs of a disabled person in this area and i remember thinking i've appeared in front of you for 15 years and I do not believe that you would have thought it was irrational not to think about that if the law hadn't had a normative effect on, on your thinking about what a judge ought to think about in a standard judicial review of a public policy case of that kind. So I, I do think it, it brings things in and puts them on the table. Um, I think it's a very interesting idea, Kate's idea, of bringing in social and economic rights into, an, into a constitution but in order to avoid this fairly bitter row that i think happens in britain about what's appropriate for judges and what's appropriate for um the executive to to put them in a due regard mode i think i guess the temptation might be then to undo the whole human rights act structure and put everything into a due regard mode and that wouldn't necessarily be very helpful um, but but uh, you know if i were having a rational political conversation about this that would seem to me a very intelligent way of of dividing up um the judicial role in enforcement of things that I think we agree ought to be right as a society we as a society I mean not we in this podcast
0: that's the perfect point at which to bring Alan in I think Alan you're currently leading a process in Scotland which might lead to a, a new legal framework for the protection of human rights in Scotland I wonder if you can tell us a bit about that process and what you hope it's going to achieve
3: Yeah, thanks very much, Murray, and it's a pleasure to join you and Ellen and Kate uh, in this podcast. Um, Kate, particularly, the South African experience has been an inspiration to me personally and and to Scotland. And just to narrate one very brief example of that, um, Glasgow was the, the first city in the world to award freedom of the city to Nelson Mandela at a time when he was being regarded as a terrorist by the UK government. And Glasgow being Glasgow renamed Royal Exchange Square, where the South African consulate was placed, to Nelson Mandela Place, so that every correspondence had to go care of Nelson Mandela Place. So we have a long, long affinity with the South African human rights journey, and, and it's, it's a pleasure to uh, to be on this. Um, yes, um, to get back to the question, Murray. Interesting stuff, I think, is taking place in Scotland, which hopefully will have a resonance throughout the rest of the UK. Um, ...exchanging experiences. It really started to get serious, I would say, a couple of years ago... ...when I think, as we've been discussing, a moment did arrive... ...when some bigger thinking and contemplation of bigger steps ...was being um, the order of the day in Scotland. It had been 20 years of devolution with the Human Rights Act... ...the Equality Act, the Scottish Parliament... ...and so it was a time to take stock. Um, There was concern that international human rights law and the whole multilateral framework was being threatened by populism and the need to reaffirm it. And then Brexit um, had the effect of removing one of the two sort of quasi-constitutional pillars for human rights protection in Scotland, the the EU protections of rights and and social protections, and in, in our view, puts at risk the Human Rights Act and the continued membership of the the European Convention on Human Rights. So to cut a long story short, um, a lot of debate took place in Scotland, out of which came um, the First Minister setting up an advisory group to give her advice what concrete steps could Scotland take to promote and protect human rights and continue its journey and not have Brexit um, constrain that uh, as far as possible, Um, and what leadership role should Scotland be taking uh, in and by itself um, so that process has led to a task force which is considering recommendations for a bill to be presented to the Scottish Parliament early in its next session. Um, the general thrust of the recommendations are there should be an act of the Scottish Parliament which for the first time would put in a single place all the human rights belonging to everyone in Scotland. They would include the current Human Rights Act, the Civil and Political Rights, the Equality Act, Um, But they would have additional economic, social, cultural, and environmental rights drawn from the UN Human Rights Treaties, which the UK had ratified, but had not yet incorporated. So the right to an adequate standard of living, including food and housing, the right to highest attainable standard of physical and mental health, to education, social security, to take part in cultural life, and the right to a healthy environment. And then also recognising the structural inequalities uh, and inadequacy of the equality regime in the UK, um, that that specific recognition would have to be given, as it has been by the international human rights system, uh, to women, to children, to persons with disabilities, on race, uh, older persons, uh, and LGBTI. That would form a framework which would then uh, determine how decisions, laws, and practice um, was done uh, in Scotland going forward. When there would be further specific primary legislation, putting more flesh on the bones of these foundational rights, uh, and making it easier for the judiciary and, and duty bearers, and indeed the public, to know exactly what these broad foundational rights meant in the specific context uh, of Scotland. And the final thing, probably, the recommendation is that within this bill or, or act, to be there would be a sunrise clause, so the initial duty would be one of due regard. But then, after a defined period of time of several years, um, that would be complemented by a duty to comply in order that there was an effective remedy provided. But the duty of due regard was there at the beginning to enable um, duty bearers to ensure that their practices, procedures, and, and law um, were, were in good shape, uh, that when the duty to comply came in, um, it should be a smooth uh, transition.
0: And Alan, can you say anything about how the experience of the coronavirus pandemic has affected the, the, the process or the importance of the process? Yeah,
3: I mean, I think just picking up on the conversation with Kate, in Scotland, you know, there, there is a deep rooted democratic culture in Scotland. So we wouldn't have been having this debate about economic, social rights if there wasn't quite a strong resonance within the public and the political sphere. For that, So that was pre-COVID debate, but I think post-COVID um, that's now much more widely recognized than even it was already before because the lack of economic and social protection for people, particularly the most vulnerable, and the structural inequalities, the disproportionate impact of the COVID crisis, not just on women, children, race, but on the poor, generally, and the most deprived parts of the community. I think that this now makes the, it's not so much any longer a debate, it's really unanswerable that this has been exposed, it's been laid bare, and, uh, and big steps have to be taken to begin to address that.
0: Could you say something about how you think if the legal framework which you're envisaging had already been in place before this pandemic, uh, it might have led to better preparedness for the pandemic? Because often I find speaking to people about legal protections for these sorts of things uh, people can't immediately see um, how they contribute to fairly intangible things like being ready for emergencies that sort of thing they, they tend to think immediately only of people going to court to enforce their rights so it'd be quite useful if you have some examples of how you think there would have been better preparedness had this framework already been in place
3: yes I, I think the um, you know they, it's not as if this should have come as a surprise to the UK in 2018. Uh, We had the country mission from the former UN Special Rapporteur on Poverty and Human Rights, Professor Philip Alston, Uh, and he didn't miss when he said this last decade of austerity uh, has severely weakened uh, your health and social protection systems and the result of political priorities having been made um, which were not necessary and have undermined the the economic and social resilience of much of the community throughout the UK and and in areas of social security, for example, I think we've now seen that, you know, as an example, the statutory sick pay is wholly inadequate uh, as a substitute for, you know, an adequate standard of of living for many families who are now realising that for the first time and that the NHS and the health system uh, was left weakened and unprepared for the pandemic and that determined the government's policy towards response to the pandemic it was more how do we contain and protect the nhs uh, rather than follow the who uh, approach of how do we try and suppress this virus and and, uh, have strategies of testing tracing isolation etc which belatedly we have come to but the initial preoccupation was really recognizing the the vulnerability of the nhs and making that the priority uh, rather than going after the virus uh, as it should have done in the earlier stages
0: so going back to kate's point about the institutional protections for these sorts of rights it sounds as if the scottish process is grappling uh, very directly with what the implications are for not just courts but for government um, directly public bodies duty bearers uh, and parliament the scottish parliament in scrutinizing uh, the government and other public bodies, and um, what their role needs to be in relation to these rights. Um, can you say a little bit about about that? What sort of things are expected of of those bodies?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a very healthy debate, you know, taking place now about uh, how the interaction between these pillars, these institutions, the legislature, the executive, the judiciary, how that should be um, reflected in this framework, and it's kind of multi layered, interactive. Um, model that we are contemplating so that the government clearly is is the duty bearer, the primary duty bearer, and has the obligation to implement international human rights law, and therefore the role of the parliament is to hold it to account, um, and hold it to account in the sense of progressive realisation of these uh, uh, duties, so that pre-legislative impact assessments done by the parliament when the government introduces legislation or the Human Rights Committee at the Parliament even calling on the government, why aren't you introducing legislation to give further effect to these rights and to international treaty body recommendations, for example. So that interplay between the Parliament and the executive, I think, is a very critical one. Um, and within the judiciary, then, as, as Kate was explaining, it's a sort of oversight you know, or reasonableness of the government's uh, measures. And then I think the role of the public um, is also extremely important. And, and the, the more effective participation and engagement that the public has, both in, in influencing the legislative process and being engaged with that uh, through public consultation, and, but, but also the budgetary process of, of the government, uh, where allocation of resources is critical. And when we're talking about economic, social, cultural rights, environmental rights, and the proportionality and reasonableness of exercising the duty of progressive realisation, then it's in in areas like the budgetary process. It's not transparent, it's not participatory, and that needs to be enhanced as part of this interaction between executive, judiciary, legislature, and the public.
0: Can I ask a bit more about the process itself? Because you've mentioned the importance of involving the public. Um, and one of the challenges is uh, how to make sure that there's public ownership uh, of these um, of these fundamentals. I, r- I remember very well in 1997 watching the Human Rights Bill being introduced into Parliament, and it was introduced by Derry Irvine sitting on the wall stack as Lord Chancellor with his full bottom wig, and it hadn't really been preceded by uh, anything like a deliberative participatory public process, which was capable of giving people ownership over the rights which, which, which were being brought in. Um, can you say a bit about the process that the task force itself is pursuing at the moment?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, having a public participatory process is, um, is a complete given. Um, you, you couldn't do this kind of exercise without taking that course. And um, so we have, for example, a, a civil society reference group. So all the, the civil society bodies who have an interest, it's open, have an interest in this uh, issue uh, are invited to be part of a standing reference group that both um, proactively says this is what we think should be taken into account and also reactively responds to us saying, well, we think you're on the right track or you're not on the right track and you're not taking this into account. Um, So involving through civil society rights holders, those with lived experience who can tell you directly the scale of the problem and what the most effective way of addressing it is, is is indispensable, Uh, alongside consulting with, with duty bearers and understanding the challenges that they have particularly in times of recession, is, is, is critical. But just to give you an example, the one very clear message that came out from civil society and, and rights holders was um, don't put another new human rights framework into operation without learning the lessons of the present one. And the lesson from the present one is there is inadequate everyday accountability of these human rights. Uh, and so we took that very much on board and what we call the the everyday accountability sector really has to have its capacity built. So that's the, the, um, the adjudicators, the tribunals, the inspectorates of prisons, of police, of care homes, the ombuds institutions, uh, the monitors, the regulators, the, you know, for example, inequality. These are very often the first point of report for communities or individuals. And to try and get it right there, rather than have the long expensive stamina draining process for individuals to go through the the judicial review process where the arguments get more and more sort of confined into what legally might be a presentable argument or not uh, and and you actually lose the everyday experience Um, so that was one of the the benefits of a public participatory process that we really took that on board and, and we'll be saying that the capacity building Uh, is critical that you can pass a law but it will stand or fall depending on what the everyday experience of being able to exercise it is Uh, and so very much in the process is bringing these uh, everyday accountability bodies these scrutiny bodies into the debates that that they have a share of the the responsibility uh, for the effective implementation of this act.
0: Alan, can I also ask you where the Scottish process fits in terms of the international context? You've got a, a great deal of experience of the international human rights system, including the UN human rights system. Uh, the Secretary General is exhorting all countries to build back better in a human rights-based way to, so that there's a values-based approach to uh, recovery. Um, could I just invite you to, to to say a few words about how the task force process fits in that wider international context?
3: Yes. Um, I mean, the the... The issue, I think, with with the effect of COVID is that this task force process, in in terms of Scotland at least, has to be an integral part of a strategic and values-based recovery. Uh, We can't go back to business as usual and um, not learn the lessons from COVID. And this is very consistent with the, the Build Back Better call from the UN, which really does mean ensuring that the recovery is values-based, and that what you might call the sort of tools for building back better, the Sustainable Development Goals, the Paris Agreement, because the bigger crisis is the climate crisis. And and if that is not front and centre, then we are going to have recurrence of these pandemics because, you know, the UN Environmental Programme says this is a message from nature, guys. Wake up, smell the coffee. If humans continue to interfere with the natural environment, we're going to have transmission of these viruses from animal to human. We've got away with it to some extent so far, but we didn't this time. And, and the next time it could be could be even more uh, pernicious. So environmental protection and, and the climate crisis and the recovery being aligned with that uh, is absolutely critical.
0: So I'd like to bring us back to uh, opening Kate's opening comments about uh, whether this is a constitutional moment in the UK. The government has proposed a constitutional reform commission um, in the the Conservative Party's manifesto prior to the election. Um, We don't yet know how much of a priority that's going to be after COVID and with all that's going on with Brexit. But if the government is still going to be appointing such a commission, I'd be interested in both your views, Kate and Alan, about what that commission ought to be prioritising as the really pressing constitutional questions which face the UK. Kate, can I go back to you first?
1: Um, well, I'm, I suppose I'm somewhat hesitant as an outsider to comment on this. I, I, I do think that regular review of a constitution is a good thing. Constitutions, in a sense, almost need every generation's commitment, even when it isn't a constitution, like in the United Kingdom. Um, and I think that we need to be thinking about our constitution and understanding it and talking about it um, all the time. So I, I, don't, I, I think the idea of, of holding such a commission is, is, is a good one. I do think, however, that it's important to uh, rec- to look at a big picture. And I, I suppose what I fear is that somewhat of a caricatured understanding of the relationship between this and the democratic arms of government may inform this commission as a result of the... Um, the political contestation that arose around Brexit and some of the major cases that have arisen there. Um, I, I'm, I'm, my understanding is that actually the Human Rights Act itself has been an enormously successful m- novel way of thinking about um, ensuring that rights are protected in the overall overarching framework of the European con- Convention, but within one of its member states. And that actually, if one looks at declarations of incompatibility that have been produced by the courts, there has been, by and large, non-controversial compliance with those declarations, almost without acceptable, very, very small number of exceptions. So one would want that to be the basis upon which, if one of the issues that the Constitutional Reform Commission is going to look at, that is informed properly by what the actual... History of the application of the Human Rights Act has been, and certainly, in looking at the jurisprudence that's arisen from the um, from the United Kingdom Supreme Court and the other courts under the Human Rights Act, there has been uh, an enormously rich jurisprudence, which I think has been of great value um, to courts uh, and, and and democracies around the world. So it, it's that, that is recognised. There will always be moments in any constitutional framework of contestation. As I say, at the end of the day, democratic constitutions are about channeling and and, and, um, uh, enabling conflict within our society to to be managed. We can't ever eradicate conflict and disagreement. And that at times there are moments of conflict about how our constitutional outcomes of our constitutional settings, whether it's legislation or decisions, of course, Is not something we should be fearful of or have the ambition to try and eradicate. We live in societies in which conflict is inevitable and sometimes can be really helpful in helping us rethink about what our society should be. So an ambition to try to eradicate conflict strikes me, um, or disagreement, it strikes me as not a democratic ambition at all, Um, but frankly the ambition that authoritarian states Uh, generally have. So if if one of the considerations here is to remove disagreement and conflict between the arms of government, between courts on the one hand and the legislature on the other, or within the government, that is not, uh, it seems to me, to be something that one would be an ambition to do in a democratic society. But uh, I also think it is a moment. I think we've we've been, um, we're learning a lot about constitutional democracies and There's been a lot of change in the United Kingdom itself just in the last 20 or 30 years um, as a matter of uh, constitutional development. And having an opportunity to rethink those and discuss those seems to me to be always a valuable opportunity, as long as it's based on a a, a good faith and um, balanced assessment of what, um, what has happened and what the problems
0: are. Alan, what what do you think should be the priorities of the Constitutional Reform Commission if it's brought into being? Yeah, um,
3: well, I I, um, had the experience of going through the the last sort of iteration of this, the British Bill of Rights um, Commission and inquiry and debate a few years ago, and and it wasn't a happy experience, I I have to say. Um, I, I think in terms of finding a way to make progress within the United Kingdom, and particularly within England, Um, and learning the lessons from COVID, um, a public participatory process and proposals that are rooted in international human rights law and a process which recognises the interesting initiatives being taken across the four nations, or particularly the three nations, not only in Scotland, but the current debate about Bill of Rights in Northern Ireland, the interesting things that are being done in Wales, for example, the, the UNCRC, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, that kind of broader, internationally human rights grounded, public participatory, four-nation approach um, may give rise to something more progressive than what I fear it might be, which will be a very centralised, very top-down, and I suspect quite a UK exceptionalist perspective in terms of international human rights law. Um, The narrative around the whole Debate just now seems to be really, how do we restrain the Supreme Court? How do we restrain judicial review? How do we make government less accountable? Because we don't like how we have been held to account in recent times. So I'm not convinced yet. Um, I'm open minded, but I'm not convinced by the narrative and the context and the lack of any evidence that's going to be a broad um, process based on international human rights law and how to make progress and learn the lessons from COVID, which means economic, social, cultural, environmental rights. But I haven't yet heard that that's part of the the remit or the terms of reference. But, you know, let's have an open mind. Um, Let's see.
0: It'll be particularly interesting to see how the opposition chooses to engage with the Commission and try to help to frame, frame its remit. We'll have to wait and see. Final question to you both. We've seen an amazing outpouring of affection by the public for the NHS. Uh, do you think we'll ever reach the stage in this country, do you think it's possible in the UK, that we'll ever see the same degree of affection for human rights and all the machinery that goes with that?
1: It's, it's, it's an interesting question, and it is one of the things that, coming from South Africa, I have found you know, quite extraordinary, is this ambivalence about the, the language of human rights, the discourse of human rights. Uh, in South Africa, this is, you know, the project of human rights is still seen as being what the project of the anti-apartheid struggle was about that and um, and and there's none of that ambivalence around around the language of it and it's surprising to me in the United kingdom given a sort of a long history of um, kind of democratic uh, engagement and struggle to some extent to build a democratic society that there is this ambivalence and frankly it's ambivalence politically on both ends of the spectrum about human rights and I find that, it's um, surprising and, and and an important question to ask as to why there is that um, why there is that evidence, given that actually apart, there are think, relatively few people in the United Kingdom who would not want the rights of freedom expression, rights of movement, the right to vote, uh, access to housing, access to health care. the substance of human rights doesn't seem to be that controversial. But somehow the label seems to be controversial, and why that is is, um, is just it disturbs me, and I don't really understand it.
3: I, I um, it's a good question, Maria, and, and there's no easy answer to it. But I think we have an opportunity. Um, polling done, like quite serious polling, which tries to dig underneath the sort of populist tabloid narrative of human rights and the, and the caricature that is very easily presented um, of or that uh, when you link it with people's everyday problems and needs and challenges. For example, over the last decade, economic and social rights, you know, how do you look after your family? How do you have respect in your work conditions for your um, time there the, the more that that human rights narrative can be what it is internationally based on human dignity not only civil, political, but economic, social, cultural, environmental, and the climate crisis. Linking those that breadth of human rights to people's everyday experience uh, gives an opportunity to, to change the narrative. And, you know, I'm, I'm always, when I'm asked this sort of question, I always sort of look, well, what is the upcoming generation thinking or saying about human rights? Are they turning off? Because if they are, then we have a real challenge. But that's not what I see. Um, and you see the mass mobilization that takes place around the world on, on the issue of climate justice say, and, and the right to a healthy environment um, and how we have to repurpose our economy and our society to serve those purposes. Um, the Black Lives Matter is, is a huge, huge thing. And um, when we're now sort of re-examining all the legacies of the British Empire and imperialism and, and looking, you know, is does this really still have a place? And And what is its place in our in our modern society so i think that um there's a great reservoir there of potential um, to reframe the human rights narrative and it's not going to be easy because i think the current narrative uh, is quite toxic um, but i think it is relatively superficial uh, and can be taken on if it's taken on in, in a way that recognizes where the younger generation are and and where most people are in terms of economic and social protection being top of their agenda. And the climate crisis is the biggest.
0: Every crisis is an opportunity to reframe old debates. Final, final question. We've been asking our guests to recommend uh, a book. Um, At the beginning, it was to help us all through lockdown. Uh, As we're now coming out of lockdown, I suppose it will be to um, keep us busy as we're queuing up to exercise their inalienable right to go to the pub on Saturday night from this weekend. So can we start, Kate, with your book recommendation, please?
1: Yes, I, I, I struggle to think of what to do, but I'm actually recommending the book that I'm currently reading. Um, it's Callum McClendon's Ape Rogon. Uh, it's a novel. Um, Ape Rogon, I understand, is a, a geometric shape with a countably infinite number of sides. The book is actually an extraordinary mixture of fiction and non-fiction, and in the theme of today's conversation, which has been about kind of conservation and conflict, it's a very, I think, brave book about uh, the Palestine-Israel conflict, because it takes two families, both of whom have lost a child, one on either side of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and it tells their story, and it does so... Uh, enormously sensitively and delicately um, creates these um, warm and real human figures uh, in this in this otherwise uh, intractable conflict. Um, and it reminded me a, a lot in the sense of the stories about South Africa, because it is about this enormous, um, countably infinite, difficult problem, um, and it's... Puts people, or um, puts people into the picture. And I think if we go back to your last question about human rights in the United Kingdom, and it really reflects Alan's answer, I think the most important thing um, to make people value human rights is to realise that at the heart of human rights is people and people's stories and people's lives. And I think this book illustrates that. And for those of us who believe in a project of human rights, not assuming it to be perfect, but recognize that it's an important democratic project. It's about communicating the stories of people's lives and why human rights matter to them that may most likely people realize uh, why human rights matter, just as we now know in the aftermath or perhaps in the middle of the COVID 19 pandemic, why healthcare matters. Um,
3: yeah, the book I've chosen, Murray. I did actually read this during the lockdown. It's not just because Kate's on the podcast that I've chosen this one, but it's a conversation between um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. It's called "The Book of Joy: um, Lasting Happiness in a Changing World." So I've, that's why I, I, I read it during the lockdown, and um, found it, um, you know, a great read. You had the Dalai Lama, you know, talking about spiritualism, meditation internal reflection and how that is a source of happiness. And you had Desmond Tutu um, saying, Ubuntu, it's it's the place of the individual in the community, it's relationships, or as the Irish say, it's in each other's shadow that we flourish. Um, and so that chimes with me, I have to say, and uh, it probably links also to this kind of, this framework of interaction between the parliament, the legislature and the executive. Can, can we bring that sort of shared responsibility and shared leadership uh, into bringing about human rights progress or at least give us a bit more happiness um, in today's world? So I would recommend that as a good read um, to everybody.
0: Great, thank you both very much. Two very uplifting recommendations, which I hope everyone will find as, as uplifting as I've found this discussion. Kate and Alan, thank you both very much indeed for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. on what we've just
2: been talking about? Well, it's fascinating to hear the perspectives from jurisdictions in South Africa and Scotland, which have some things in common with ours, but very different political cultures when it comes to approaches to human rights. Um, What I found a point for reflection was um, the question that you uh, asked Kate about whether this is a, a constitutive moment or constitutional moment. And in the way that she said, it was necessary um at the end of apartheid to uh bring in a constitution to, which protected social and economic rights because that was about writing uh, the apartheid that people had recognized that was wrong i wonder if now might be a moment where people recognize some of the problems that austerity has caused for people's basic ability to live lives that we value and possibly also the um The the bringing in of the Black Lives Matter moment at this moment as well, and whether that means that um, there will be a constitutive moment. I guess the real question is how we get beyond the quite narrow institutional rows there are about human rights um, here, and and that point about the content of a right being different from the way it's enforced or realised. And I really do hope And that we'll have that moment of proper public, wide public engagement that Alan talked about that's been happening in Scotland. I think that would be vital if we're going to bring human rights properly into the public um, and political sphere.
0: Yes, I think that's right. I think there are lots of lessons there in what we've heard from Alan and Kate about what are clearly a whole series of reframing opportunities we've got at the moment. As you say, Brexit, Covid, Black Lives Matter, there are so many quite fundamental things going on which really do shape how we should have this discussion about our national self-identity and our constitutional arrangements. And I think the challenge now is for the Constitutional Reform Commission, if, if and when it's established, uh, what should it really be concentrating on? That The original mandate that was envisaged when it was trailed in the Conservative Party Manifesto uh, does seem to have been rather overtaken by events to a large extent. So I think that's something to, to watch out for. So that's all for this week. Thanks very much to my co-host, Helen Mountfield, to our guests, Kate Regan and Alan Miller to our producer, Rachel Murray, and to you for listening.